1: Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley.
2: Welcome to episode 217 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. After retiring from medical practice, I became an activist for family caregiving. Our topic today is moving your adult child to independence. Independence is important for every adult, but achieving independence can be challenging for adult children with mild intellectual difficulties. Independence offers to young and adults with mild intellectual disabilities benefits that include living their own lives, attaining a sense of their own value by having their own place in society and in the workplace, strengthening of their own sense of their dignity and self-esteem. But independence for young adults with mild intellectual disabilities brings challenges, challenges that include getting the supports they really need, being exposed to risks to their safety and well-being and feeling fearful and isolated. So enabling young adults to achieve independence involves stressing its benefits and overcoming the challenges it involves for them and their family caregivers, which is why our topic, Moving Your Adult Child to Independence, is so important. To discuss it, our guest is Heather Resnick. Heather is a revolutionary parent. For 26 years she's advocated for her daughter who has a mild intellectual disability. Since 2007 she's advocated for help for people with intellectual disabilities who are capable of living independently with support. She spent countless hours researching, writing articles and conferring with professionals at all levels of governments, social service agencies, school boards and parents, all with the hope of creating transition job training programs and employment. She fervently believes that, with these programmes in place, people with intellectual disabilities can take their rightful place in society and as contributing members of the workplace and attain the dignity they deserve. But, despite all her efforts, she's seen little effort, little in the way of progressive change, and I'm emphasising that despite all her efforts. She graduated from York University, Faculty of Arts, and from Seneca College, Legal Administration and Government Operations. She's the author of Women Reworked, Empowering Women in Employment Transition. So, welcome to the show, Heather.
3: Thank you very much, Gordon. I'm very happy to be here, and I think the work that you're doing is very, very, very important to get the, uh, the rest of the world knowing what it is that parents have to go through.
2: Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Now, please you tell us more about your story of your life and your work.
3: Well, I'm a three-time cancer warrior. I wrote my book, uh, Women Reworked, uh, back um, in 2005, and it was uh, written after my second uh, cancer, and um, that's because I had been at home for 20 years with my uh, children, although that's an oxymoron because I never stayed at home and just ate chocolates or watched TV. I was involved in a lot of uh, volunteer programs at the time, um, but, you know, I wanted to go back into the work Place And I saw that there was um, a great fear for women who wanted to reenter. So um, in 2007, I did a very um, extensive and it was very stressful online marketing campaign for my book. Um, Within three days of this online campaign, my website was shut down by an American company called Barracuda. Um, barracuda Trolls uh, websites for spam. And without even checking for me, um, they shut my website down, and this was in the middle of a, an online Amazon marketing campaign. And so the momentum I had built up totally just fell, it, it just like it fell off a mountain. And um, I was really, really upset. So I have to tell everybody to beware of the Barracuda. Anyway, um, so I was deemed an international spammer. (laughs) That was my 15 minutes of fame. And um, when the sales prospects uh, tumbled and then I had some other health concerns, I decided to abandon the project. But when you do a, a project like that, you put your heart and soul into it, and it's like when it doesn't work, it's like a death in the family. And I went into a grieving process for about six months. And then um, suddenly I remembered Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. She said, if I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't look any further than my own backyard, because if it isn't there, I never really lost it to begin with. All of a sudden it hit me that I had been successfully advocating for my daughter for two decades, and that maybe I had um, the necessary um, skills to reach out and help other parents who have children with intellectual disabilities and help them navigate the treacherous waters of the educational, financial, and social supports that were out there. One of the greatest uh, challenges that I found, though, was um, job training and employment. Um, It seems to be uh, very sporadic. There are lots of programs out there, but they don't always guarantee people jobs, and they always try and find people who maybe are more qualified, so those that really need the assistance always fall through the cracks.
2: Now, Heather, I'm going to stop you there because we're going to talk about that more in a moment, and I have something else I want to ask you. I want you to tell us, about your advocacy for your daughter.
3: Okay, so she was born uh, six weeks premature, and we were told by um, the neurologist that she would probably have lifetime learning challenges. Uh, when she was about three, that's when we noticed that you know these challenges were starting to occur. So right from that moment, we tried to plug into whatever the available resources were. Um, we got her development. Developmental pediatrician from Six Children's Hospital, and as she was uh, progressing through schools, we got her occupational therapists and uh, facilitation at her education institutions and reading programs. Uh, we also wanted her to have active leisure activities, so we put her in swimming, gymnastics, dance, skating. Um, we also organized her social life until she went to a private. School and a summer camp in her teens and was able to make friends on her own. That was also something that we had to do. When she was six years old, I put her in SPARKS, which is like the lowest level of Girl Guides, and um, I worked intensely with her to help her achieve her badges. And uh, from a young age, I taught her life skills, like how to get up in the morning on her own, how to take breakfast, make her lunch. As she got older... I showed her how to do her laundry. Um, I also got very involved um, in her schools advocating for uh, what I thought would be the best practices for dealing with her. And um, I also advocated for her as she got into high school and did volunteer placements and sought out employment opportunities. I arranged financial supports and provided my husband with the necessary information for her to get Ontario Disability um, Support Program. It's sometimes called ODSP. And um, the best gift that I gave my daughter, I have to say, is that not just me but my husband. We have taught her to self-advocate. so now she's living on her own in a supported uh, living environment where she gets life skills two times a week. But she definitely knows how to advocate for herself.
2: Right on that point, I want to switch you to another question. Please tell us about the lives of young adults with mild intellectual disability. What well, what it is? What is it to be okay, well, a young adult? Um, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, what is it to be a a young adult with a mild intellectual disability, what's, what's the life like?
3: Well, they're usually an invisible entity because they're often they don't have visible signs of a disability, so people misunderstand them. Um, people who don't know that they have a disability are ineffective at communication with them. And then the person who has the disability might get angry or frustrated because they Feel they're not being understood, or that their needs are not being met, or that they're being rejected. Um, their disability also plays out in negative psychological and emotional ways. Uh, oftentimes, um, their mental growth caps at a certain age range, which can limit maturity. So, for instance, my daughter is twenty-six, but she's kind of capped off at around fifteen. Now, I don't know about you, Gordon, but when I was fifteen, um, I hated my parents. There was nothing they could do that could, you know, get me through life. And I didn't think they knew anything, and I didn't want them to know anything about me. And sadly, that's my daughter now. <laughs> She's very obstinate and argumentative and secretive. And anyway, um, and so that's one of the things that, that often happens with um mild, intellectual, disabled people. Um, Their coping skills are minimal, which can lead to tantrums and withdrawal. Uh, It's difficult for them to learn things without proper training and patience. Um, Employment is fraught with many limitations and frustrations, if employment even happens at all. So it's very sad that their dreams of career opportunities get scuttled early on, because they have dreams just like we do. Their social skills are often non-existent, which limits opportunities to build friendships and other relationships. Um, This can lead to depression and anxiety, making it almost impossible for them to move forward to self-actualization. Sometimes self-harm finds its way into their thought process, and that gets acted upon, and that's a very scary thing for parents to um, have to deal with issues like that. Uh, Their self-esteem plummets to rock bottom, and then when inertia sets in, then they become a ward of the ever-burdening mental health crisis situation that we have faced here in Ontario.
2: Heather, I'm going to take the break now, but just before we go into it, I want to say to you that those are severe challenges for the young adults and also for the parents that you've described. And in the next segment, we're going to be talking about the challenges and the way in which um, they appear and the severity with which they appear. So, we'll take the break now, and then we'll carry on with this important discussion. So, this is Dr. Gordon Atterley, and my guest is Heather Resnick. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. Please stay with us. We will be back.
4: Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment where can you
5: listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to share success tips and entrepreneurial guidance the voice america empowerment channel will do just that hear about personal growth building a better business inspirational life stories and personal branding you'll find it every day at voice the voice america empowerment channel it's your world motivate change succeed if you think you've seen online tv before We're on Facebook, along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment.
1: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Heather Resnick. Our topic is moving your adult child to independence. So let's now talk about the challenges to parents and their children with mild intellectual disabilities. Now, Heather, first of all, for parents of children with mild intellectual disabilities, please tell us what you consider to be the most challenging of the challenges that they experience, these parents?
3: Uh, Parents have to fight on a daily basis to ensure that their child has access to Basic expectations that all parents, you know, want from their children to be happy and healthy and be um, gainfully employed and uh, to be contributing members of society. And it starts in the school system. You know, there, there are often not adequate resources and training to deal with uh, children with uh, special needs. And then parents have to be on top of curriculum and teaching strategies all the time to ensure that their child is learning those skills so that they can live a fruitful life as independently as possible. Um, And teachers and principals, unfortunately, are not always on the same page as parents. Um, So sometimes parents then have to scramble for additional resources like uh, tutoring and enrichment programs, I can give you an example of something that happened in my daughter's life that was very, very frustrating. Uh, When she was in grade one to grade three, she was put into a special pilot program where she was with about eight other students who... would work independently with a special needs teacher when they were doing English and maybe math, but for the rest of the day, they were integrated into a regular classroom. Uh, York Region uh, Board of Education was spending a lot of money per student, around $30,000 a year for them to be in this program. And... By the time my daughter got into grade three, we noticed that she wasn't reading, and she knew she wasn't reading, and she was very upset because she really felt like she was different. And I had heard about a program from a different school called Reading Recovery, and I got in touch with the principal at the time to find out whether or not my daughter could be part of that, uh, um, you know, program, and he said it would have to be a private arrangement with that. Specific teacher and I said fine so he arranged for that to happen and she was starting to learn and it was fantastic and then in March of that school year I found out through her developmental pediatrician that they actually had a reading program uh, for special needs children in the school that she was at but I was never told about it um, we didn't even know it existed and when I confronted the teacher she made some excuse and said that there was a waiting list and I said well I don't understand like why would this program not be for these kids and I realized that the program was put with kids who were maybe borderline readers and they would be able to um, prove that the program actually worked because these kids could advance and I was really really upset and my developmental pediatrician wrote a note um Severely demanding that my daughter be part of this program. She had to stop the other program after we spent thousands of dollars on it, and this was March already of the year, and the school year ends in June, and she was put into this other reading program. So they had they had given up on her right from day one that she was ever going to be able to read, and um, that's what we encountered. And from my experiences talking to parents now, there's still a lot of issues that go on with... Um, you know, with parents in, in schooling. And then after they're 21, um, the schools aren't, nobody is mandated anymore to provide government programs. So it's up to the parents to access further um, resources. And um, there's a whole lack, lack of structure to for the parents to even find out what resources are available. And there's a lot of time wasted. And when they finally discover um, a program, there's usually waiting lists, you know, for funding, for housing, for public day programs, for life skill programs. And um, it's, it's, you're helpless. As you watch your child sit at home, because I know of parents where this has happened, where their child turns 21 and they have been so push down from the system that they don't feel that they can do anything, they don't want to um, further their education, they don't want to volunteer, it's hard for them to get employment, and they sit in their parents' apartment or house watching television or playing on the computer all day. Um, so there's a serious isolation factor um, right. also that happens for parents because... You know, for other parents who don't have kids with disabilities, they just don't get it. And the parents are just exhausted anyway, and they just don't have time for um, a social life. And it's, um, it's a very uh, pervasive worry to have your dis- disabled child um, no longer um, be able to you you would no, no longer be able to help them when you're not around you know or or you're not able to anymore look after them and you don't know what to do with them at this point
2: right now let's it's the same question but it's regarding the children what are the most challenging of the challenges that they experience especially when they're starting to live independently
3: well normal learning processes are Often impeded because they lack comprehension, sometimes physical coordination, coping skills, and caring. And what I mean by caring is is that they don't see the bigger picture or the need for them to maybe learn a specific skill. And sometimes I know we often tried to teach my daughter um, skills, but you know she she refused to listen to our suggestions and did it. it you know, because it, she felt it undermined her sense of independence and self-worth. So we always had to get external people to, you know, to teach our people, to teach our child uh, those skills. And then for that person to work with our child, they have to build up the trust so that the child feels comfortable enough to even want to uh, work with them. And then... Um, then that person has to motivate them to learn the skills. And nothing can be taken for granted. Everything has to be clearly stated to them, shown if possible, with step-by-step written instructions. There has to be constant repetition. Um, It can take months, for example, to learn how to cook a chicken, you know, or a piece of chicken. Um, Skills need to be revisited to ensure retention. Um, Enormous amount of time. um, uh, And it frustrates the person learning the skills, you know, they're... Ready to pack it in quite early on in the process because they're just getting so frustrated. And then budgeting is another serious um, barrier. Often their uh, levels of math are lower, so they don't have concepts of money like how much they have and how much things cost and if they're going to get changed back and how to save and how to budget. And, um, you know, everything is just hard for them to comprehend. I know of one young man who got a credit card sent to him. He didn't even have a job, so I I don't know why they would target him. And without telling his parents, he began to use the card. His expenses spiraled out of control until his parents found out, and um, his parents had to negotiate with the company to reduce the amount of money owing, you know, given his circumstances. But that's really, we we wouldn't let my daughter have a, a credit card for that. Specific reason and it's not easy when their peers have credit cards and they can go and buy things whenever they want but we were pretty adamant so she's gotten used to the fact that she can't have a credit card
2: right now I want to ask you a question that concerns the kind of issues of safety and well-being for these children what are their risks to their safety and to their well-being, that e- either they or their parents fear or that they could experience when living independently? What are those risks and what are the fears?
3: Well, they're very vulnerable. They're very, most of them are very trusting souls and they don't see the danger of anyone who might want to hurt them or take advantage of them. And I know one woman, she's in her 30s and she lives in a public social service group home. Um, And she met a man outside of the home and he got her to move in with him and his family and he encouraged her to smoke marijuana and the worst thing was is that he had her turn over her Ontario disability support check to him every month. Uh, The mother was frantic. You know, she tried to intervene, but the daughter, who's of legal age, um, supposedly, um, but is not in the capacity of legal age, refused to listen. And that's another tricky um, point is, uh, you know, declaring your child incompetent because, you know, a judge would ask or some, somebody from the judiciary might ask that person questions to see how competent they are. And they appear to understand fully what is being asked and what is expected of their response. But actually they don't always know exactly what it is. So, um, um, you know, legally there's, There's very little that you can do about this. And in this particular um, group home, um, they refused to intervene also because of this woman's legal age and her right to control her own life. So the mother was lucky that she was at least named as a trustee and guarantor for the um, disability check, and uh, she was able to get them to send the check directly to her so she could... At least pay the group home because the mother was really concerned that her daughter would lose a spot, her spot because there are years and years of waiting lists to get into these, um, um, these group homes. And uh, the mother was just beside herself. She, you know, she had no clue uh, what she was supposed to do. And I can tell you in my daughter's own life, um, there have been countless times when she hasn't been given change back from an unscrupulous cashier who failed to tell her that she was owed money back. You know, then, you know, for me, I fear internet safety. I'm always concerned that my daughter's going to provide information that's going to allow viewers to access her personal information, and she could be tracked, or she's going to put on uh, provocative photos on there. And you know, we try and talk to her about it, but she's pretty adamant. She knows what she's doing, and nobody cares. And it's it's very hard to try and tell somebody what to do when they think that they know what it is that they have to do. So, you know, and then there's anxiety and, um, you know, OCD, which is, um, you know, um, oh, geez, I can't remember what the rest of the term for OCD is, you know, where you're constantly doing the same.
2: um, Obsessive-compulsive disorder, is that what you mean? (laughs) Right,
3: Right, you know. Right, and you know, and there's depression. These are all common traits. And um, Mm -hmm. you know, if the depression stays stays that way, then you know, then they can turn to either self harm or retreat into isolation. It's just it's just a constant worry. Like even when your child isn't living with you
2: right absolutely now unfortunately it's the end of this particular segment so we're going to go for the break but we're going to be returning to some of these things that you've been talking about Heather so this is Dr. Gordon Atherley and my guest is Heather Resnick you're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River please stay with us we will be back
4: success starts here VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You need to live up to your full potential. You've heard that for years, but now there's a channel to help you get there
5: Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment
1: Channel. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Heather Resnick. Our topic is Moving Your Adult Child to Independence. So now let's talk about the ways in which the challenges that we've been talking about can be successfully confronted by parents and by their children with mild intellectual disabilities. Now, the first question I want to ask you, Heather, is related to the research you've been doing. That research, what conclusions have you drawn from it about the ways in which parents and their children can successfully confront their challenges?
3: Well... I discovered that parents have to actively be engaged in providing their children with um, positive support, um, tools, and resources to be ind- independent, and success rates of children living independently rise significantly when parents are involved in that in that way with their lives. And here's an excellent example, a program that I discovered in the U.S. called Project Search. It's a successful one-year um, high school Um, job training transition program for people with either mild intellectual disabilities or sometimes they call them developmental disabilities. Um, Their recently published book, it's called High School Transition That Works. It's by Brooks Publishing. Um, It's really imperative that um, for the student to participate in the program, the parents have to agree to buy into its success and support their child. And then in this particular instance of employment, of employment, the parents must take the time to learn about the program. They have to arrange for their child to be appropriately transferred into the program. They have to answer in-depth questions about their child's background, including, including their needs, social life, employment readiness skills, attended, um, they have to attend monthly meetings, they have to attend training sessions and activities to help them prepare their child uh, for competitive employment. They're also expected to network with, um, for employment opportunities for their children and with um, other parents, and they have to be available to provide continuous support for their child once they are employed. And according to Dr. Patience White, a pediatric rheumatologist in the U.S., she offers nine suggestions to parents. Now, these are in relation to employment, but a lot of these apply to everyday life. And um, it's begin early about talking about expectations, teach children about their disability, ask their opinions and involve them in decision-making, give them chores, develop patterns of good attendance, Maintain health in order to stay active. Involve children in social and leisure activities without the family. Uh, talk with children about work early and often. And think about the transition plan in one to two year segments. The best, the best thing she says is that parents or caregivers can do for their children's success in employment is to have high expectations of them. And that so often does not happen even with parents of children who've got mild intellectual disability, because you just, you can't fathom that they can actually achieve certain things, because they've been told by teachers and other people that they can't, and you start to believe that even as a parent. And um, if you prepare as much in advance as possible, it helps to ease the burden um, when they're on their own and, they don't like surprises. People with mild intellectual disability, they need to learn slowly and, as I mentioned before, it needs constant repetition.
2: Right. Now, Heather, a similar question, but I want to focus now on your work in advocacy. So what conclusions have you drawn from your work in advocacy about the ways in which parents and their children can successfully confront their challenges?
3: I found most of the parents that I talked to or I interviewed, uh, a majority of them don't do a lot of the things that they need to do towards moving their child towards independence. And this is for several reasons. They're exhausted and frustrated and they're overwhelmed. Um, They may have other issues that they're dealing with. You know, they might have other children. They might be caring for another family member. Um, They might have employment problems, sickness, or disease, and a lot of them have financial burdens. Um, A lot of them don't know how to access information or how to advocate. Um, After uh, unsuccessful attempts at getting help, uh, they often give up after, you know, one or two uh, tries. Um, And the parents themselves sometimes inadvertently prevent the child from moving forward. Um, For example... Um, there are parents who do not want their child to work, even if they're capable, because they don't want the Ontario disability benefits to be clawed back or cut off completely, which is what happens when you get employment. Um, and then another problem is, is that parents cuddle their children. They never allow them responsibilities or discipline inappropriate behavior. Um, Sometimes they're in serious denial. You know, if I pretend the problem does not exist, then maybe it doesn't exist. Then there's a fear factor that creeps in. Um, They know their children are vulnerable and they don't want to see their children hurt. Um, So they they cocoon them, you know, um, believing that they're protecting them from evil external forces. Um, They distrust service providers because of previous negative experiences. And I really believe that as we do with children, with our children who don't have disabilities, we have to plan for the future. And it's a very daunting experience, but it's a necessary requirement of uh, parental responsibility. And, you know, when my daughter was in um, private school from grade 5 to 12, her teachers um, made it quite clear based on their own research and previous experience, that without the involvement of parents, uh, many of those students would go on to be involved in drugs and alcoholism, criminal behavior, homelessness, and or mental health issues. And um, all of these have a dire impact on not just themselves, but their families and and the society who has to pick up the tab for social health and judicial services.
2: Now, next question, Heather, is... What you've found from both your advocacy work and your research, from those, what help do you think is most needed by parents and their children with mild intellectual disabilities to successfully confront their challenges?
3: Well, over the 26 years, I've learned uh, many tips and I've done extensive research. I often receive phone calls and emails um, from mothers who want them I want me to help them resolve their issues or provide them with resources. The best thing, I think, for parents with children who have mild intellectual disabilities is for them to take parent workshops. There are many support groups out there, but few offer realistic opportunities to positive change for the lives of the, of the parents or caregivers. I actually proposed an idea of workshops to several social service agencies. Uh, They would be individual workshops that could be online or in person, depending on what the majority of parents wanted, maybe multi-methods. And they would include things like advocacy, independent living, employment for their child, social needs, resources, meditation, relaxation for the parents because we forget that they are also going through an enormous amounts of stress, um, networking with other parents, communicating with professionals like doctors, banks, budgeting, financial planning, building a circle of support, long-term planning, and anything else that parents would find helpful. And I wanted to create a hard copy manual to accompany the workshops with a, and a DVD and CD so that they can listen or watch at their leisure, but I got no response, even though my suggestion was to charge a fee for service to the parents. So I put out some questions with some of my social service uh, um, agencies that I'm connected to, and I wanted to know if parents would be willing to take such workshops due to their time constraints and whether or not they would pay for them, and I've never gotten a response back. So it's my suggestion that I think that parents need this, but I don't know if they want this. That's
2: that's the truth. You know, that raises an interesting question, um, which I keep coming across, and that's this. Whether parents need more information um, than they currently have available to them. Um, just very quickly, in clinical medicine and nursing and so on, there's something called a clinical practice guideline, which is basically advice from experts written in a way that practicing physicians and nurses can use to guide them in particular situations. And what we're now starting to think about is whether a family care guideline uh, would be useful. And it seems to me that what you've just been talking about would have been or will be, a form of family care guideline. Is that right?
3: Yes, that's exactly what I think is necessary.
2: Now, we're going to talk more about some of the things that you want to see in the future, but I'd just like to very briefly ask you that sense of, good idea, you're saying, I think, family care guideline. Who should produce it?
3: Well, I mean, in my suggestion, I said I would produce it because I have the experience to have, you know, with my research and I've done many interviews with parents and because I get phone calls and emails from them and just because of my observations of the way, um, you know, I've been inv- involved in um, community services that deal with people with intellectual disabilities my daughter's whole entire life and I just um, You know, I I see these missing gaps. I mean, we have meetings from community living, and at first everybody's gung-ho, and then the parents uh, stop coming. And I have to say that I'm included in those parents who've stopped coming because I don't see anything happening. I don't see um, – I just just don't see – constructive things going on making these changes, there's more cutbacks in resources and more cutbacks in uh, funding than there are opportunities to keep moving forward. So it really is, and, and I really found that a lot of parents, uh, not a lot, but, but there are quite a few parents that really don't want to be involved they, they they're so stressed out as it is that they just want they just want the government to be responsible for every aspect of their child's life and like i said before we all have a responsibility as parents and just like we would plan for our children who don't have disabilities we need to plan for our children who do and yes right. we have limited um, financial resources and physical resources to be able to do that so we do need assistance but we also need to recognize our own family responsibility.
2: Right. Now, we're going to stop there and take the break, but we will be carrying on. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Heather Resnick. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. Please stay with us. We're coming back.
4: This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel.
5: Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America talk radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America.
4: You need to live up to your full potential. You've heard that for years, but now there's a channel to help you get there. Interesting.
5: It's your world.
1: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Heather Resnick. Our topic is moving your adult child to independence. So let's now talk about more things that you, Heather, want to do and see done to help parents in moving their adult children to independence. So what more do you want to do um, and see done to help parents in moving their children to the independence you see as being so important? Heather?
3: Well, I find that um, parents are often invisible in this whole process. They're like the forgotten victims, you know, uh, trying to assure that their adult children will be safe, financially secure, and happy when they're no longer able or around to look after their children. Uh, They need to have more control over the outcomes of their child's future. Um, They need to be seen as key partners in the process. I would like to see parents uh, being invited to sit on committees where government policies and procedures take place so that their input can be heard and acted upon, or at least given notice or a voice so that these policies and procedures reflect the most important aspects of, of their needs. Uh, Christine Elliott, the MPP for the Oshawa, and she's also the PC deputy leader, um, critic, health and long-term care, and she's also a mother of a son with intellectual disabilities. Um, she's also the wife of Jim Flaherty, who is our um, Minister of Finance for Canada. So she knows what parents are, are going through, and um, she tabled a motion last year to create a select committee on developmental and it was passed in May by all the provincial parties, but they have they have yet to get the committees going. Even though their first interim report is due October 31st of this year, and then the final report is due um, April 30th, 2014, and they need to begin summer proceedings. Which um, the summer began June 7th, and nothing's happened um, because the um, apparently the. Um, NDP and the Liberal have not um, agreed to establish the committee yet. Um, So, the purpose of this, one of the purposes of this committee is so that parents will be um, called to deliver testimony on on the subject and how they're affected by uh, cutbacks and lack of services. So nothing's happening. So if you want to uh, make a plea to uh, Liberal Premier Kathleen Wynne and NDP leader Andrea Horvath to get this uh, this committee going, then I suggest that everybody do this en masse so that we can, uh, you know, get the government to move forward. The other thing that I would like to see is I'd like to see them – parents being given um, direct, self-directed access to money. Uh, they do this in the United Kingdom and in Denmark, and, and so far it's one of the better ways to determine the best services for the child that will result in best outcomes for the child to live independently. So the parents get the money, and they hire the people that they need to provide the services for their children.
2: Heather, what more do you want to see done by healthcare, social, and educational systems to help parents in the kind of situations you've been talking about? Heather?
3: The first thing I would love to see is a Ministry of Disabilities created. Right now, parents have to navigate through so many different um, ministries to get the support that they need, and this this could all be streamlined if there was one Ministry of Disabilities you know, and there could be a branch for living independently. So, um, in healthcare, it concerns me that a lot of uh, family doctors don't have a clue about what's available for uh, for parents and and the stages that their children are going to go through after they've finished um, high school. And I think that's really important that they have a list, an effective transition, and list of resources. Um, also, you know, for psych- psychiatrists and psychologists and so- social workers and occupational therapists and any of the professionals that deal with the families um, who have t- children with special needs, it would be really great if when you went to your family doctor, you know, a year before a transition point that your doctor would be able to provide you with resources that you, this is what you're going to need from here on in. Um, an example that I came across is that there are many people that don't even know that the Ontario Disability um, uh, Support Program exists, and you have to apply for it when you're 17 and a half. And I've met, you know, I've met young people who are 20, 21, 22, and their parents had no clue that, that this program existed, and that that money is... A lot of money, enough for people to help them at least live independently if they don't have a full-time job or they're unemployed. It's extra money that they're entitled to, you know, as a taxpayer. And they're being denied because the government's not even advertising this particular, um, you know, program. Um, The government also, in that particular program, they have to decrease the clawbacks so that the person has more money to live adequately. And then under the social service systems, there need to be, um, their specific services should be known to the public um, through the um, above services, like through the uh, doctors and whatever. And they also have to be clearly defined online and uh, in other notable places so that people know that these programs exist. And they have to provide efficient and effective programs that will ensure success. Another thing that I think is a problem is that there is not anybody working in partnership here. Everybody does their own thing, and um, there are agencies that overlap. And I really think that it's really imperative that everybody begin to work as a partner. Um, the family member, the uh, the family member who's got the disability, um, the social service agencies, the government, employers, they all need to uh, work together. Um, as far as high school... Um, they have to create employment training programs that actually work long-term. And they have to ensure that the students be given skills, that they're going to be employed and then supports afterwards so that they can maintain employment. And the Project SEARCH that I told you about is just that excellent program that does provide those uh, specific things.
2: Got it. Now, Heather, very last question. What is your message to parents about moving their adult children to independence, Heather?
3: I say you have to take a leap of faith in allowing your child to move into independence. If you've done all the prep work that you can, um, teaching your child as many skills, life skills and values, then you have to believe that they will be successful on their own. And I can only speak about this from my own experience. In 2007, well, for years, actually, my daughter has been searching the uh, Internet for programs to go to out of the uh, province or out of the country. And, you know, we would always kind of poo-poo those ideas. Well, yeah, okay, that's great. But, you know, there was no way we were going to let her go to some uh, strange place, you know, given her, you know, challenges in life. But then in 2007, she just, discovered with a friend this program down in uh, Florida, and it was an independent living program that was an adjunct to also um, an academic program for people who had difficulty because they had uh, various uh, um, developmental challenges in getting through university and college. So you'd be living on your own while you're learning these um, various skills. So my daughter didn't go uh didn't want the academic and she really has a hard time with uh academia. So that wasn't the possibility, but the uh life skills portion was and we were totally intrigued. And I started to do uh serious investigation. I talked to parents, I talked to students, I talked to staff, I talked to the administrators um We actually went down to see what the program was like, and we were really impressed. And my daughter was able to try a three-week program in uh, the summer of that year, and then in the fall of 2008, we moved her down to Florida. She lived there for two years. Uh, She met the first love of her life. She met friends that she still has to this day, and... The truth was, the truth is, is that we knew in our hearts that in order to let her soar, we had to push her out of the nest, and the result is now someone who's living on her own.
2: Fabulous. Now, that really is a message of hope. We've talked about some very tough things, Heather, but that's a message of hope, and I think it's wonderful. Now, unfortunately, we are at the end of this particular episode, so I want to say thank you, Heather, for sharing with us all of the things you have shared, so your own experience, your own insights, the results of your research, what you've learned from your work. And all I can say to you on behalf of everybody is please keep it up, We wish you every success because what you're doing is important. And some of the things you've mentioned, maybe we should do another episode on or get together politically or something now i want to say thank you to our listeners we'd like to hear your comments on this episode and from our listeners i'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show in our next episode we'll talk about parenting children with special needs please join us same time same spot on the internet talk to you then
1: thank you again for joining us this week for family caregivers unite with your host dr gordon atherley Please tune in again twice every week, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful.